We're three races into the Formula One season at last, and for Gary Anderson, that means lots more performance data to pour through and technical details to to go over. So plenty to talk about in this latest podcast. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and of course, joining me as ever is Gary, who we're going to serve up an opening question to try and blindside him before we get into our main topic, which we'll start off with uh, with the rules madness in a moment. But first, this is a this is a driver team related question this is from Richie on Twitter we've seen both Albon and Gasly suffer up against Verstappen at Red Bull but do you think this is solely a driver issue or do you believe something operationally is awry on that side of the garage I don't think there's anything operationally awry on that side of the garage I mean I think whenever you you look at it Verstappen came into Red Bull um, and he's, he's had time to sort of create a driving style that sort of fits the car and as, as the years gone past, the years have gone past, that, that driving style has been adapted to the new package. And he's, he's pretty good at that because he's, he's fairly young and, you know, he's obviously a very handy driver. I mean, he, he really does put the car, he's got confidence, I suppose you might call it, confidence in his ability to handle most stuff that's, that's thrown at him. And whereas the others have come in and they haven't really had that time to settle down and get everything right. You know, they, they just seem to be dropped into the deep end and the car the car obviously gets looks as though it gets more and more critical every year. It's around the same philosophy, but it just seems to get more and more critical for that that knack of driving, that ability to sort of get it to turn on its front wheels um, with you know with confidence in the rear of the car. And I think they got a sort of situation with this this year's car where it's just a bit over the top. I rate Albon very highly, and obviously Gasly shows that whenever he's in a a, a different car, he does a good job. Uh, a lesser performance car, probably you might call it. And with these cars, whenever you're pushing them on the limit, you know, they, they do get to be nervous beasts, I suppose you might call it. And there are new tires, it's slightly different. But once the tire edge d- disappears, you know, then you, you just, you're relying on that confidence level of the car. And I don't think it's there with the Red Bull at the moment. I think Verstappen puts up with it because his whole learning curve has been with that type of a situation. So um, it's a difficult one to know. Um, I hope they give Albon the chance to get, itself, get, them, get himself together with it all because I do rate him as a driver. But I think that at the end of the day, the, you know, the, the problem lies in the basic chassis of the car. And uh, Albon's not able to get the best out of it. Verstappen's able to get you know, the best out of it. But still, the best is not good enough. You know, Mercedes are still a, a different dimension, to be honest. So even at its best, the Red Bull at the moment is not a championship contending car. And that's really sad, because I come into this season thinking there was potential for it to be there. Yeah, it's deeply frustrating, isn't it? And there's, there's quite a few red flags with them, isn't it? The, the aero instability they've got, the spins. And obviously, when you, you have this big gap in qualifying between Verstappen and Albon, that's the classic case of a, you know, a, a superstar driver who's very at home, just able to drag a lap out of the car, whereas the confidence isn't there for the, for the other ones. So it's a team thing, isn't it? And ultimately, Red Bull will be trying to get Albon to work. There's all sorts of conspiracy theories, but teams want their drivers to, to do well, don't they? Yeah, they do. I mean, they need two cars scoring decent points, to be honest, to, get, to form any championship contention. But the, the thing about it is if, if Max Verstappen goes out and, you know, as he did this weekend, smacked the wall in the warm-up lap or the installation lap to the grid as such, well, that's, that's just the way it is. You know, Max, they've got confidence in him. He's won races and whatever. If Albon went out and done that, they wouldn't even probably have bothered to try to fix the car. And that's the difference. You know, once you get the credibility from the team, you've got the credibility. So if Max goes out and spins now, you know, they they sort of accept that is not Max. That is something that's happening. Whereas if Albon goes out and spins with the car, he, you know, it's, well, you're doing it wrong. So it's, it's a very difficult situation that, that uh, Albon's in. The team, 
obviously have a car problem. They, you know, uh, we went to the test in Barcelona. Watching in Barcelona, you could see the same stuff. You could see the car was quite nervous to drive. Um, they had a few spins here and there. We, we commented on it at the time. But you had to go out on the track and have a look at it and, and see it in general as to what was going on. I mean, the driver will come back and tell you the story, but if you go out on the track and have a look, and I think one thing I've learned from stopping being involved in Formula One and going and having a look at the cars and thinking about stuff is that when you're in the pit lane, it's very difficult to see the wood for the trees. You know, you have to go out in the circuit, have a look at your cars. And it's something I've always done with my cars is to have, try and have a look out in the circuit or in the latter years. It helps you a lot. Now, you know, I hear people like Christian Horner saying they didn't, they don't have an inherent problem. Um, you know, and the car was all right in Barcelona. It wasn't all right in Barcelona. It was a, it was a car that was just on the knife edge. It might just have been all right. And then a few more aerodynamic developments in the same direction as what they've got. And that just tips it overboard. So think about it. Just have go and have a look and just look at yourself relative to the competition. Because that's all that matters. Relative to the competition this year, which is Mercedes, you know, they're not in the same ballpark. And it's, it's going to be a long way to go for Red Bull, isn't it? I asked Max after the race if after all this chopping and changing of parts and the the, the understanding they built of the car, whether he was confident they had a good direction. And his answer wasn't very confidence-inspiring because he basically said, yeah, well, we've got to understand the problem in order to be able to fix it. So I took that to mean, no, we don't, we don't really have a decisive idea. And with this quick-fire season, that, that they've basically lost it already, haven't they? Because they're not, they're not going to be catapulted back to the front at, at Silverstone, are they? So that's another batch of three races coming up imminently. That, that, that's a third of your season gone. Yeah, no, it's definitely, you know, and we don't know how many races are going to be this year. So the thing about the thing about finding fault is that, you know, Red Bull didn't build a car that they thought would be like this. You know, they didn't they didn't build that from the beginning. They didn't say, oh, we're going to make a car that's really nervous to drive here and the driver will spin at every occasion and our second driver won't even be able to drive it. They built a car they thought was a better step than than what they had last year. And all the research and directions for development that they do is in that car. Simulation, anything you, you do is all built into that car. So if they just keep on trying to develop that car blindly with the same set of parameters, uh, the same set of test r- tests that they do to create data, the same set of simulation tools, then they'll just potentially make that, that, uh, that problem worse. They need to step back a little bit and see why the car's creating that problem and what they're missing in their, in their direction. I mean, here's me trying to tell Adrian Newey what to do. A bit stupid, isn't it, really? But at the end of the day, the car has a problem there. And as I say, the competition is only only the competition at a given point in time. And that's where Mercedes really are. So there's no team out there that know 100% of what makes a racing car actually go faster around a racetrack. You know, the best team, let's say, at the minute, is Mercedes. But they probably still only know 90% of it. And, you know, they can trip up over that last 10% just because they don't research it. They don't know about it yet. They will find out about it as time goes by. And at the minute you say Red Bull have got, you know, a 20% gap, they can trip up over it, and they have tripped up over it. Even if they know the same amount as Mercedes, you know, they're the team that's tripped up over the bit they don't know, and Mercedes haven't tripped up over that bit. So you have to dig deeper. That's all you can do. Don't just keep blindly developing. Dig deeper, research differently, look at things differently, analyze things differently, and see if you can pinpoint the the problem. And once you've got the problem, you can fix it. It's easy to fix. You just need to know the problem. Yeah, and then make sure that your fix doesn't, Expose another problem. That, that thing you say about every team will only know a certain amount 
of what makes their car work. I and mean, I've heard you say that many times, and it's one of those things that I, I think I consider it one of your wise sayings to always have in mind because it it's it sounds when you first hear it, it sounds a, it sounds a bit stupid in a way. But then the more you think about it, and the more you understand it, the more absolute sense it makes because we constantly see people tripped up by problems they don't necessarily know are there maybe the rules change and it just exposes something that it wasn't an issue because it was patched over and the way you know it's a it's a very complex thing the performance of a formula one car isn't it and you can yeah you you never know what what's there so for all we know red bull's found something that's been an inherent thing in their car but has never quite been an issue and it's just tipped it over the edge uh what what they've done uh this year yeah, it is. I mean, as I say, it sounds a very basic thing that nobody knows everything that makes a car go quick. You know, every day and every way we should learn something new. And that's the same with designing a racing car. You know, if you knew everything today that you might know in 10 years' time, then you'd be pretty clever. Or if you knew everything 10 years ago that you know today, then you'd have done a pretty good job then. But you don't. So you learn something every day of every week. Every day you research something, you find a new way of looking at it. A new way of analysing that data. All, all that a Formula 1 team does... With their, with their wind tunnels or any simulation, is they create a bunch of data. But that data isn't human. That data is just numbers. And then it's down to you how you interpret those numbers and how you make it all function. All those numbers are, you know, 99.9% of them are de- derived from some sort of steady state positioning of, of, of the car in a wind tunnel. Nothing is transient because it's just very, very difficult to do it. You try to do transient measurements, but, it, you know, it gets so contaminated with outside influences of, of torque being put into things that are creating that transience. So everything is about a, a, a pinpoint steady state position and then you sort of connect them all up with a line. It's about like an Excel sheet with little numbers on it and then you you know draw a graph from it. Um, and between those points, there's something else. So where do you go? How much do you do? But for the driver, you know, the transient state of a Formula 1 car is everything. The car never sits still. The car's always given him a message of some sort through a corner. And the one thing I always used to say about Rosberg and, and Hamilton was whenever they're driving the Mercedes, if you watch closely, Rosberg was always fixing the problem of the car. Hamilton had confidence the car would fix it itself. So he wasn't, you know, Rosberg was, was reacting to every transient movement, everything that happened in the car. The steering wheel was always on on the move that little bit, just a touch, just to correct everything that was going on, and Hamilton would leave it alone. So there's a big difference in that, but that's, that's I think, where the difference between simulation tools, modelling, data gathering, and a human element driving it, you know, that's, that's the difference between people and a machine. Yeah, it's going to be a big test whether Red Bull can, can troubleshoot all that. And I guess before we, we get on to our, our main topic, this is the natural place really to talk about the extent of the Mercedes supremacy. We we did that little piece at the end of the race where where myself, you, Mark Hughes, Scott Mitchell chipped in on, on the argument of whether Mercedes could win every race this year, which sounds like a stupid thing to say. But on current trajectory, it's certainly possible. It is certainly possible. Um, the big problem is going to be, you know, to do it, they probably need, two drivers trying to achieve it. Now, we know that Bottas started the season very well, as he normally does. But the Bottas I saw after the race in in, uh, in Hungary, he just looked a bit down, a bit dejected. You know, things weren't... It suddenly tipped overboard to him that, hang on a minute or two. I know it's all right because we, we've finished 1-2 as a team. But actually, I was second again, you know. Um, 
Lewis, without a doubt, has just come back year after year without just taking that step up up the ladder all the time. Constantly, he finds that other little bit of an edge somewhere along the line, and um, that it's going to be pretty tough to compete with. But again, the competition is only as strong as a snapshot in time. When we left uh, Hungary, without doubt, you know the Mercedes cars were a class of their own, to be honest. Um, and that's down to now Red Bull, Ferrari, Racing Point, whoever else, Renault, McLaren, all to challenge that Mercedes. But I'm afraid I don't see it happening. I don't see any of those at this point in time challenging Mercedes. So if Mercedes keep the nose clean and um, reliability, obviously, is, is good, then I think, yes, they can win. They can win easily every race of the season. And be on pole every race of the season. Well, that's the, the big challenge, isn't it? Obviously, McLaren almost did it in 1988. Missed out on one race, uh, a late collision with back marker Jean-Louis Schlesser did for Senna at Monza. And funnily enough, you know, teams do think of this. I remember the, the following year, 89, uh, Nigel Mansell won the first race in Brazil and Ron Dennis was apparently really irritated because he went into 89 thinking, right, we're going to do that. We can do it all this year, having come so close last year. And then uh, Nigel Mansell and Ferrari uh, <laughs> ruined it straight away. But well, let's go on to our main topic, because uh, I think this is one where I can just uh, light the fuse and set you off on it. The Haas penalty. In short, it was because they communicated with the driver about the pit stop on the formation lap, both drivers, in fact, called them in for slicks, and this was considered basically a driver aid based on a technical directive. Yeah, um, I just cannot believe that anybody with any in between their ears would think that having a consultant with your driver on a warm-up lap about what tyre to put on the car would be a driver aid you know it's just ludicrous that somebody can sort of push that to that level and say hang on you know you can't talk to your driver about it in those conditions you know uh, even in any condition I don't care what it is even any condition whatsoever so basically if I don't know Grosjean had said I think my front wing's broken I'm coming in. And they had come in, looked at the front wing, said, no, no, it's okay, but we'll change the tyres while you're here. Done. Yeah, no problem, because it was a safety thing. Where, where is this logic? You know, where do we find logic in the fact that some team tries to do something clever? I would have done exactly the same. I've never seen the technical directive, but I would never have classified consulting with your driver about tyres and a wet dry condition as being a driver aid not in the near not not in a lifetime you know it's just unbelievable that they come up with that and then at the end of the day the Haas team who need a little bit of a, a lift and uh they were the race for a long time you know they were fantastic they were right up there it was a matter of obviously they were going to lose out to faster cars but at the end of the day they held on quite well they did quite a good job and that will have given them you know a level of motivation but to just kick them in the teeth at the end of the race you know, whenever you also consider that this actually happened before the race started, then on the way there, the FIA had, or whoever does it, the stewards or whoever's looking at it, had 70 laps to give them a penalty of some sort during that race. If they if you know, really deserved it, you know, be it five seconds, ten seconds, drive through the pass. I don't care what it would have been. But you cannot, in my book, leave it to the 70-lap race that's competed and them thinking everything's okay and then... You know, the people watching the TV think, oh, well, that was good, wasn't it? You know, Haas turned the TV off and then suddenly the next morning they realise, hang on a minute or two, what happened there? That's just that's just mistrust in the whole system for, for viewers, spectators, 
you know, if there were any, but, but viewers especially, you know, the viewer wants to watch the race, the viewer wants to see the checkered flag come down, and the viewer wants to know that the result they saw was the result that stood, because that's what it should be. And that's what the FIA tried to do a few years ago, but that seems to have gone away again now. We just, you know, there's, there's two races now are in question as far as um, the, the, uh, the points are concerned because of the, the racing point and Renault stuff. And then, you know, also we get all these penalties coming out. So it's just it's just crazy. If a penalty isn't handed out within five laps and doing something, I think that should be it. It's, it's dumped. And of course, we know you'd have been penalised in that race because you tweeted on the formation lap. Slick, slick, slick. So you'd have been done. Yeah, well, I mean, I would have been done. Yeah, because as I say, I never saw that. I never knew there was a, tre- a technical directive. But I would never in my mind, sitting here in the CT watching the TV, I'd never in my mind thought that somebody could relate driver aid and tyre changes on the warm-up lap of a dry, wet-to-dry race, potentially. Put those two in the same sentence. It's just crazy. Madness. Absolutely ludicrous. And then, of course, because the rule is there written in black and white, you can't communicate except for these exemptions. That's what the stewards had to measure it against. And this is the other frustrating thing, is that I know there's often cases where stewards want to let things go, but they do have to adhere to the, to the letter of the, the law. And the, the, more, the more pages there are of rules, we've got these enormous, thick printouts of the sporting regs and the technical regulations, then all these technical directives. This technical directive was several years ago. Why it's not in the regs so everyone can just see it explicitly? Because you're, you're also wonderful for the team. You've got to keep track of all these technical directives. And technical directives have been around for a long time. So are there technical directives from... 20 years ago that uh, that you might forget or whatever you know it's it's a it's a very very odd it's it's just messy administration if nothing else even if you accept it's a sensible rule it should it, that one should be in the regs like I said you sound like you're on my side um yeah you know i agree with you completely you know a technical directive should just be a, a one year patch you know for something in the regulations that needs exp- explaining a little bit better fine send a te- technical directive out but at the end of that year that gets added into the regulations somehow so it's there as part of the main bulk of the regulations. But they are getting far, far too too tr- tricky. You know, one of the biggest problems as well is, you know, some of the stewards that we've got now, you know, the last time they sat in a, in a Formula One car, there was one button on the steering wheel, which was the radio, um, or even some of them maybe had a horn, but, you know, they're not up to current level of, of stuff that's going on. All that information that comes up on the on the on the dashboard of the Formula One car now is all driver aid stuff. It's all stuff that's derived, you know, from from the fact of how the the clutch bite point went, or what the torque was, or what the throttle level should be, or whatever. It's all derived, you know. Whenever you have a graph or a, yeah graph bar bar chart or something on the steering wheel that tells the the driver exactly the, the throttle percentage and stuff like that that he's using. I mean, that, that's all driver aid stuff, isn't it? It's all just stuff that basically the, you know, blank the dash off for the warm-up lap. You know, have nothing on there then. Just don't give the driver any information whatsoever from when he, when, from when the red lights or the, uh, the green flag waves to when the red lights go out. You know, do something like that where it's totally wrong to inform the driver of anything. But, but the rule about the tyre stuff, that's just ludicrous. Yeah, well, there's 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 so much of this, and you know, it, it's it makes it difficult for the it's difficult for the fans to understand. Not because it's complicated, but because you know, if you're a really engaged fan, if you want to, you can download the regs, read the reg. You don't have to take our word for it. You can read the reg, look at what happens, and say, "Oh, I see why that's the case. I get it." But you can't do that with some of these rules. And likewise, we had the the jump start for Bottas. Now, it didn't it didn't help him, 
but it was a jump start. Sky did a very, very good analysis with Anthony Davidson and friend of the podcast, Karun Chandok, who um, sort of showed it was five or six frames before the red lights went out. It, it, Bottas reacted to the lights on his on his dash going off because he was so primed and he was uh, obscure, his view was slightly obscured by the halo. So you then look at how you define a, a jump start and there's a reference to it's down to the transponder and the distance it moves etc and whether you're outside your box etc but there's also a, a secret tolerance in there for how much you can move but this is another thing you know if you're a, if you're a fan you can't see that what exactly what that tolerance is now michael massey the race director says that's a that's a secret tolerance so the teams can't game it and i can understand that argument because they're, they're there did used to be digressing. That I remember there being controversies about people doing all sorts of electronics trickery with the lights, kind of back in the nineties or early two thousands, weren't there? There were some regulations about that. So you may you may have some stories about that as well. But again, it's not it's not transparent. You know, in athletics, whatever it is, a tenth of a second. If you go within tenth of the second of the gun or, or some number, I can't remember the exact amount. It's a jump start, even if you're after. Whereas this, you've got a. A jump start. We saw this with Vettel at Suzuka last year in Austria a few years ago with Bottas again. It's clearly a jump start, but explaining why it's not a jump start becomes really difficult. Tolerances are fine, but madness again. Yeah, it is. You know, obviously there there is what they look at the tolerance for is whenever you pull the car into gear, um, because you don't do that that early because you don't want the clutch sitting there overheating because then the start might not be as good because you get too much bite from the clutch. You're relying on the temperature change in the clutch to actually increase the the performance of the clutch. As these clutches get hotter, they get more more grip as such. So you'll initially want the clutch to slip and and then bite. Um, and that you know if you have the if you put the car in gear too early, it'll overheat. So you're waiting basically, and that's what they have this tolerance for to allow the car to clunk into gear and move by X, whatever that X is. I mean, it would be so easy to have a number. You know, they've got five lights up there, and in theory, you know, they go one, two, three, four, five, and then there's supposed to be a random amount of time. I think it's between four and six seconds or something. I can't remember exactly. Um, between them all being on and going out, and that's the randomness for the driver. During that period of the lights going on and off, there, there should be a number, you know. And if you if you abide by it, it doesn't matter whether you put your, clunk your car into gear at the first red light or clunk it into gear at the fifth red light. It's up to you. The car can only move by, and I'm just using this as a, as a simple thing, you know, 30 centimetres. So car comes up, the car sits still. When the first red light comes on, if you move more than X between now and the lights all going out, you get done. It's simple, isn't it? And it's, it cares for everything. And that could be, you know, 10 centimetres, 20 centimetres, 30 centimetres. I don't know how far the cars move these days, but it's not much. It's a you know just a, a quick clunk as the car goes into gear. So it could be so black and white, but once again, that would give no leeway. And that's the bit I hate. I hate I hate grey areas of policy because without a doubt, in everybody's mind, Bottas did jump the start. You know, Kimi Reckon got reckoning got done with for it, I think, and maybe it was Suzuka or somewhere. I can't remember, but his was less than. As was less than, than Bottas was. Yes, Bottas stopped and all that sort of stuff. But that doesn't mean anything because if the car behind was just sitting there looking at Bottas, thinking, when he goes, I'm going, you know, the car behind would have gone and Bottas would have stopped again and then there would have been an almighty accident. So, you know, they've got to tidy this sort of stuff up. And it, it has to be black and white. I think for everybody, we'd all love to be able to understand it and see it and know it 
um, and not talk about something that we don't know anything about. Yeah, that's transparency, isn't it? Which is a, a great benefit. Just, just that, oh, that, that uh, point I mentioned earlier, the, the old uh, gaming and the electronics at the start, do you know anything about that? Were you doing it back in the day? Uh, what, what was the, because I remember reading about it, this was before obviously I was covering Formula One. Was it, was it a serious thing that people were doing to try and anticipate the lights changing? Yeah, I mean, there was plans to, or, well, there was things happening, to be honest, to recognise the light sequence and, um, you know, to try and, you know, understand that a little bit longer because that is that um, dead point between the last light coming on and, and going off that you want to try and anticipate if possible. But you know, anything like that is a risk. Um, there was people had things on the you know on the visor that that identified the lights that bit um, quicker. The change of the change of, of light as opposed to the lights going out because the big there's a big time. It takes a lot of time when the lights being on and the lights being out and if you can identify them on the way the lights start to dim before they actually go out if you can identify that light level um then you you do have that's milliseconds but you know milliseconds might be half a meter whenever it comes to it so there was people trying to do it we didn't really get too excited about it because uh a, we weren't clever enough i suppose yeah, it's uh, another one of those things they tried to clamp down. And I, I guess I can see that's why they might argue they need secret tolerance. But it's yeah, another another confusing thing. But again, it's it's just difficult to to, to explain to people. Now, I think the wider thing with with the stewards is if you look at Bottas, he didn't gain from the start. He lost out because of it. I would like the stewards to be able to to sit down and let's say. It was. It did satisfy the criteria for a jump start. I'd like to be able to say, well, actually, he didn't really gain from it. So maybe in this case, you can let it go, just to give them that little bit of leeway to apply. Although then, of course, you could get people trying to take a risk and systematically doing it. So uh, it's complicated. But I think generally, uh, and this comes down to the way stewarding's done, isn't it? If you have a permanent stewards panel with a bit more leeway to interpret the rules as they want to. And then they can build out all that precedent in their mind. Because the FI does work hard with the stewards. And for the most part, they're very diligent as a bunch. But I just feel that that, that flexible. Because you can't write down in black and white every eventuality. And that's what went wrong with the Haas thing. Because they wrote this rule. No, but probably nobody, when it was being written, thought, oh, what happens if it's mixed conditions and they might want to pet? Nobody thought that. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, the, the thing is, if, like Bottas and his start, as you say, he lost out by it. So... He had the penalty, you know, of, of trying to jumpstart it. If he had gained by it, then he deserved a penalty. But he didn't. He lost by it. And it's the same with, with Magnussen and, and Grosjean. I mean, they were, what, uh, 15th and 17th? No, 18th. 16th and 18th. And, you know, by pitting, they put themselves, you know, 19th and 20th. So they both lost position as such on the road by doing what they did. It wasn't as though they dived in the pits because... Somebody had spun in the last corner on the way to the grid and acted clever and got in the pits and got tires changed and ended up, you know, getting out there and, and sort of making making ground up on that first lap. They didn't. They took a risk. They took a gamble. They lost position on the grid. They went backwards a little bit to begin with, but went forwards whenever everybody else that didn't make that decision um, decided to do it. So, yeah, I think the stewards can look at th- should look at things like that and say, if you've lost ground because of a situation, then it's like going off off the track out of track limits. You know, if you've lost ground because of it, then you haven't gained anything. But then you know they have to get into the fact. Well, he was four point eight seconds behind the car in front of them. You know, the last lap across the start finish line. Now he's you know three point five. He's gained. 
No, it's not 4.8, it's 6.2. It's lost. It's quite simple to come up with some numbers and say, okay, well, we'll, we'll do this because he's gained or we'll not bother because he's lost. So end of the day, there's, there's, there's logic in there somewhere and, and logic has to come into play because, you know, the rest of us just don't understand some of these things. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see if they uh, they tackle that particular regulation as uh, it certainly would benefit from a bit of tidying up. Well, I guess before we finish, we should also, uh, moving away from contemporary F1, obviously before the uh, Hungarian Grand Prix weekend, we had the sad news that Ron Taranak had, had passed away, you know, a, a design legend, Brabham and Rolt are the, the two marks that he's indelibly, well, not indelibly associated with, that he, he effectively in part was. So uh, I guess he's someone you cross paths with and, would have crossed swords with on track as well uh, over the years. So, uh, so, so, what did you make of him and his contribution and, and him as a character? Well, I I got involved with Brabham just after Ron's time, so I never really worked with, with Ron at Brabham. Gordon Murray has, had come in there as designer, and, and Bernie had bought it from Toronac. So, because it's, it's actually often forgotten that he, uh, when Brabham retired back to Australia, it was Toronac's team for a period before Bernie. Got it, isn't it? It's like that people tend to miss miss that that little interregnum, as it were. No, it was it was his team. I mean, um, him and Jack Brabham were were big buddies. You know, worked together for a long time, and then Ron, as I say, kept it running, and um, and then come along come Bernie. Uh, but my my biggest association with Ron was through the Formula Three uh, and three thousand days. Um, I was building my own Formula Three car um, called Anson, and Ron was doing the Rolt, and we were in competition with each other. Um, it was quite funny because you know he was he was such so helpful. You know, whenever we needed a, I remember one time we needed a Volkswagen a dummy engine for the the car to build to do all the the bits and pieces that you you know put a dummy engine in the car for, and I couldn't get one anywhere. And Ron had one and you know sent it up in his van to me just to to help. And he always um, it was very strong competition. He built a you know a very good basic car that worked very very well. Um, and then the majority of teams would, would would buy that car as such. So getting in there was very, very difficult. Getting in the, in the door was very, very difficult. So we, for the British Championship at least, so we concentrated a bit more in Europe, um, where Ron didn't have a, such a stronghold. Um, Delara was the stronghold over there, and luckily we had a car that was better than their car. We had some good results, but Ron was always helpful. And then in Formula 3000, we started running, as Bromley Motorsport, we started running a Rolt um, for the first year, and... Yeah, Ron was a character as far as that was concerned because he's he's a bit he's a bit like the old school of Eric Broadley and that you know. Again, everything was was mechanical. Um, aerodynamics were something that was there, but everything was mechanical. He would, you know, suspension geometry coming out of his ears. I remember going to Pembury testing with the Rolt with ourselves and uh, the Rolt team. The two teams went down there, and they probably had five different front suspension geometries to test. Whereas we just sort of try to get the right springs and roll bars on the car. Um, so it was a character, and it's sad. You know, 95 years old, I think it was. It was, so pretty good innings. Um, but again, like, like any of these, the older people, statesmen in, in Formula One that have been involved in it, uh, in any motorsport thing, you know, they were characters, and they, they came through hard times, and they did things that people just, you know, today could not understand, so... Yeah, we miss him dearly, but uh, he's been in Australia for quite a while, so uh, it was a pleasure to know him and uh, learned a lot from him. It's kind of a reminder of a, of a lost time of, of single-seater racing in terms of when you could have these constructors that were doing these 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 customer programs and that kind of thing. That, that does happen, but Dallara is not 
is not what Rolt was or what March was or what Anson was. You know, it, it's it, it's got such an iron grip now on in many ways. There's a few of these companies, Delara, Tatas, brilliant companies, and they got there through their own efforts. But you know, the, the I mean, Brabham, a big part of Brabham's success was that it was so good with its customer program, selling selling cars in F2 and F3, helping support the F1 project, and then Rolt, and obviously, you know, the idea of a constructor like Anson coming into categories like F3 and having success. It just wouldn't. It just couldn't happen now. Not even if you set aside the fact that F three is now officially one make, which means it's not really F three in my in my eyes. But a very different time. It's kind of sad to have lost that. It is sad to have lost that. And, and the problem with that is is really that when it wasn't one make formulas, you know, young engineers could come in, do stuff, learn stuff, you know, change stuff, suspension geometries or bits of aerodynamics or design wings or whatever. Put them in the car and go and race them. And were they any better? Were they any worse? You know, you had an opportunity to test that sort of stuff. So you just, you know, that's all been taken away now. So we're, we're all focused on drivers. But, you know, the, the young engineer le- learning curve now, it isn't there. The reality of the learning curve isn't there anymore. You've got to come in and, you know, be some sort of a boffin to begin with. You can't go out there and learn. And, and that's sad. You know, the, the, the old days of doing your own stuff to the car and making it better are were very, very good. And as I say, I think that's the biggest thing we miss now. And all these one-make formulas are just destroying that completely. Yeah, they. I mean, this is a whole other topic, but they they've grown up for a reason to save people money, but they've actually become very costly for enterprises because these whole edifices grow up around them. Um, you know, F two and F three are not cheap things to compete in, but that's a, that's another topic. Another topic actually is the story of Anson. We're going to have to do that on a podcast in the, in the future because that's uh, not not always perhaps remembered as well as it should be actually, and it's uh, it's, it's a good uh, a good fun story. I tell you, it's, it's very interesting when I, when I left. Just a quickie on that. Whenever I left. Um, Brabham's in the middle of 1976. It was to design our our second Anson as such. We had a, built a first Anson, which was really a Brabham BT38, um, sort of re-engineered, I suppose you might call it. Um, but the the new one was my own car. It was called the SA2. And uh, a friend has, has got it. A friend's father's had it for a long time, but he died and his son's got it now and wants to rebuild it completely. So I went up last week to see it to my brother-in-law's place. And uh, I'm amazed at 1976. He's, he's got the drawings there still, a lot of the drawings. They're my drawings. I couldn't believe I could draw so well then. <laughs> it just blew my mind seeing the drawings and, and the car. Um, and I was just saying to him, maybe sometime we should have a look at that car and the uh, a Jordan 191 because I've got all the drawings in the, in the loft space in my garage at the minute as well. So a nice comparison. There's some interesting things on that car in 1976. It'd be interesting to have a look at. Was that, was that among the Ansons you got to drive Went back when you couldn't get a good driver? Yeah. Well, yeah. So whenever I couldn't get a driver that had money, I would drive it. I was quick, but I uh, didn't have any money. But yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because he's got one really good picture of me in the wet with it. Um, and it looks, it looks okay, pretty good. But the car was a good little car, but it just as I say, Unipart were going to sponsor it. And then we had a bit of, actually it was quite interesting because we had a bit of a falling out with Unipart. Um not through that, not falling out as such, but they went somewhere else to another team, and uh, because somebody told them a lot of lies. But anyway, and there's another story to that as well because um, Tolman, I spoke, to, or Ted Tolman called me, coming to see him about um, taking over the company as such, um, and I said no, I'll do it myself. But they were going to finance it all, um, so we make these decisions that sometimes don't work out, but. Sometime we'll go into it in a bit more depth. 
yeah, I think there's a very good story to be told there, and I think we're going to have to go and have a look at that, Anson, as well. That's uh, something else to look forward to. Well, I think we've uh, we've digressed brilliantly here. It's uh, it's always good to go off on a off on a tangent, but uh, yeah, it's been. Uh, quick fire series of race obviously we'll be back next week with some more we're also hoping to bring uh bring a few uh a few gary meets type podcasts where he uh takes on some uh technical directors tells them what they've got wrong gets them to justify their existence all that sort of thing so we're looking forward to doing that covid19 has made that somewhat difficult but uh hopefully we can we can start to do that and obviously obviously there's loads of uh material from gary on the races website and from the rest of us so uh thanks for listening and we'll be back in a week's time with more from gary <laughs> <laughs>